Welcome to China Tech Talk, the podcast about technology and startups in China. I am John Artman, Editor-in-Chief of Technode.com, joined as always by Matthew Brennan, founder of China Channel. Before we get into today's episode, just uh, just a quick plug. If you are interested in receiving daily updates on uh, what's happening in technology in China, just go to technode.com slash newsletters for your daily dose of China Tech. And of course, uh, if you uh, enjoy the podcast, if you enjoyed this episode, please do make sure that you go to iTunes and leave us a review. If you're on Pocket Casts or Overcast, you can just tap that star button to recommend this episode to your network. So today, it is our pleasure to welcome onto the show David Cohen, who is senior editor at Technode.com. David's been with us for for a good a good period of time already, and he's he does some really a really great work. And uh, one of the big initiatives that he's been spearheading over the last four or five months has been our coverage of uh, the health code. So that's one of the things that we wanted to uh, to talk about, and we brought him on. And so we'll be talking a little bit about what the health code is, and then, of course, looking at bigger questions about what it all means for data privacy, as well as some implications for the for tech majors in China as well. Yep, it's a shorter episode, but I think we cover a lot. And very timely, obviously. So a lot of this stuff is changing as we talk about it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think it's—I mean—it's one of those things. The health code and kind of you know the use of technology. You know, China has been uh, a leader in technology adoption, as we all know, for the last uh, several years. Uh, but then, in particular, with COVID nineteen, not only where they where was China the first country to really deal. With COVID nineteen, but also because of that, the first country to really implement any tech techno, technological based uh, solution to manage the epidemic. But with that, we give you David Cohen. As the coronavirus swept through China, communities, local governments, and businesses have been trying to figure out how to best follow social isolation rules. This being China, of course, tech majors and telcos have jumped at the chance to serve the country by leveraging their vast data pools and rolling out uh, what we now know or what we now call the health code. So, to discuss this, we're joined by uh, David Cohen, senior editor at uh, at TechNotes. David, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. Matt. So uh, the first question that we like to ask all of our guests is, uh, "What's your What's your China story?" Well, uh, for me, I kind of just kind of happened. Someone gave me a hedgehog. I was in Beijing in uh, 2007 uh, on my way to Mongolia, some research, and I was uh, wandering around, um, completely lost in a, in a in a big concrete park. I think they were planning to install grass or trees later, but there was nothing there. I run across a few. I think they were construction workers. They had old bicycles. And foreigners are still really novel. This is before the Olympics. They come up, they want to have an interaction with me. And they, they say hello. I say ni hao. That's one of the only two Chinese words I spoke at the time. And we were just out of conversation. We had nothing else to say to each other. And one of the guys goes back to his bicycle. And he reaches into the basket. And he pulls out a hedgehog, like living little animal. Brings it over to me. I've, I come from California. We don't have them there. I'd never seen one before in my life. And... He shows me this hedgehog, and he shows me that you can pet a hedgehog. I didn't know you could pet a hedgehog, but if you do it the right way, they don't stick you. And uh, then he hands it to me. So I'm standing there holding a hedgehog. And after a minute or so, I've had enough, and I want to give it back. And he just refuses. He like, just like, shakes his hand, waves his hand in front of his face, and he starts walking away. And so there I am in July in a park in Beijing. I need to get on the Trans-Mongo- Trans-Mongolian Railway the next day, and I've got a hedgehog. I don't know what to do with it. I run after the guy shouting. 
and uh, finally his friends talk to him and he takes it back. But I was just amazed by this experience. It was so weird. I thought, okay, I, mean, I have to understand the hedgehog thing. It must be some kind of like ancient Chinese culture. I'm going to learn the language. I'm going to move back here. I'm going to figure out what happened with the hedgehog. It's been, uh, what is it, uh, 13 years now. I've never seen another hedgehog in China. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I've ever seen a hedgehog, period. <laughs> Certainly not in China. No, definitely not in China. So, uh, so yeah, David, tell us then, you know, what got you to uh, where you are now? So you had that research project in Mongolia, but then you ended up coming back. And, and so what's, what's kept you here? Well, I got into journalism pretty quickly. I tried English teaching like everyone does, and I was terrible at it. So more or less had to, had to get into freelancing in order to make a living. And since then, I've been writing and editing um, about China ever since. It's enormous fun. The country changes so fast, you know, if you, you get bored of things, they wait two years, you come back, it's essentially a different country. And, you know, I was a history student in college and uh, enjoyed learning about how societies change and didn't enjoy spending time in libraries. So I thought, um, you know, you go to China, you don't have to read about it, you can just watch history happen. And I, I think it's paid off in those terms. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. Um, so maybe we switch into today's topic, which is the health code, and start off with a a really basic question, David, like, what is it? What is the health code? Well, um, I mean, if you've been following stories about the social credit system, or you know, a lot of uh, tech and governance stories in China, you hear about the government giving everyone a number, giving everyone a code. And that hasn't really happened with social credit. It's a really complicated system. It's really ambitious. It sometimes seems like that's the goal. And a few towns have done it. But um, I, I don't have a social credit rating. Most people don't. It's not part of our life. The health code, though. The health code, it's an app or a mini app that you have on your phone. And uh, if you're in a major city, pretty much every single person is rated um, by red, yellow, or green based on how risky the app thinks, how, how likely the app thinks it is that you have uh, the coronavirus. I mean, that's, that's kind of the short version of it. But I mean, you know, how is the code actually generated? And, and, and what does it mean? I mean, does it mean that 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 you might actually have it doesn't mean that you're at risk of having it. You know, can you talk a little bit more about that? Okay, so how the code is generated is a pretty complicated question. Let's let's come back to it. But what it means, essentially, unless you have a green code, you can't you can't pass checkpoints. And there's really there's checkpoints everywhere in China. It helps to understand the whole country is sort of set up on a grid system. Most people live inside a sort of gated community. Offices tend to be in office parks. There's malls. Um, you know, it turns out, and we saw this a couple of months ago. When uh, the government wants to, they can really shut down the country in a very, very tight way, something that's probably hard to imagine if you live in most countries, where you can't really leave your home, you can't get to a shop, you can't get into an office without passing a guard. And once the health code came in, you've needed a green code to pass these guards. So the green code is your pass, basically, to participate in normal life, to get on a train and go to a different city, to be able to attend work, um, or even to get in and out of your house, depending on how strictly they're enforcing the system. What the code means is we think it it seems to be pretty conservative. So certainly under most systems, it seems that anyone who has been to the province of Hubei, Hubei was the epicenter of the epidemic where the city of Wuhan is, is going to get a red code in most parts of the country, although Hubei now has its own code system, which allows some people, which gives some people green and allows them to leave the province. Likewise, um, we believe that if you live in the same housing compound as somebody, as a single case of the infection, you're going to be on yellow or red status. So really what the green code is for is identifying people who have basically zero chance of having the virus, who have not been to a city where, there, where, there are, where, where this community spread for two weeks or 
who, if they're in that city, who have not been to been to a, to uh, any place that is associated with any housing compound or office associated with the virus. So, kind of, I kind of want to you know, go back to uh, to the question that I tried to uh, to ask uh, a couple of minutes ago, which is, you know, really. How does it work? How is the the, the code generated? A, and perhaps even a, a bigger question is, you know, how accurate do we think it actually is? So the truth is, we don't know. It's it's a difficult question to attack. First of all, because the um, the governments and the companies that are implementing the code are very opaque. Uh, there isn't that much information about it. Second, because there are many many different codes. Code there's not there is now talk of a national code system, but uh, most of the codes that we've seen so far are being implemented by cities. So there's a code for Shanghai, code for Hangzhou, code for Beijing, code for Ningbo, which is a smaller city in the same province as Hangzhou. Now, when we first saw the codes, there was absolutely no clue where they came from. Um, you, you filled out a little intake survey when you joined, and this varied a lot depending on where you were. In Hangzhou, where I was when the codes rolled out, you asked, answered a few questions. Do you have fever symptoms? Where have you been the last few weeks? In Shanghai, there was no intake survey at all. It was apparently all based on information that they could gather about you. Down in Shenzhen, I haven't seen screenshots, but I hear that there was a very long and rather complicated intake survey. Beyond that, uh, there were rumors at first when we started seeing codes. People were, you know, we know that the code systems were being developed by Alibaba and Tencent, internet giants in China, and many people figured that they must be using the full range of uh, information that they have about you, which is a lot. In particular, I heard people thinking that they might—they were probably uh, following where you might uh, take out a share bike. You know, you scan a share bike with a QR code. It sees where you are in order to unlock the bike. You make payments. There's location data associated with those, and then there's government databases of travel information. Um, if you most uh, public transport cards in cities have real name ID attached, and um, certainly when you travel intercity, intercity a train ticket, a plane ticket is going to go into a national travel database. So that's what we were imagining. What it turns out, or what we've been able to verify, we're now looking at a little bit more information. A few weeks ago, uh, the, a few Chinese regulators released uh, standards for a national code system, which includes diagrams describing um, how this national code system is supposed to work. And that really descri- it also includes, very interestingly, a list of protocols for transferring health, health-related data. And that's, so that's a list of different types of data that uh, they want to take in. And both of these seem to suggest that actually it's not gathering very much data. It's consulting the National Database of Transport Information, and it's matching that up against um, records of COVID-19 tests and um, recent records of fever symptoms reported by local authorities and hospitals. Other than that, plus self-reported travel histories and then basic biographical information, it seems that the code system doesn't actually know very much about you. We've talked to experts, and we're trying to figure out whether we believe this. On the one hand, it could we it could be that there is some other system out there that we have we haven't seen, but it also seems quite plausible. That it really is a very simple system. The basic rule is is find the people who haven't been anywhere close to a case and give them a green code. Yeah. Okay. And and how long is this going to last for then? I mean, they st- they they've uh, been in use for a couple of months now. Have we has usage? Been on the increase or the decrease, and and do we see this as a long term sort of uh, development? So I mean, we want to step, but to answer that question, we want to set, think about two different things. One is the the full on checkpoint system where you show your code twelve times a day in order to get into a market, to get into your office, to get into your house. In most of the country, that system is already on the decline. In where I I've been around Shanghai and Zhejiang, 
it came in came in very very fast, pretty early. Only after about only about two three weeks of lockdown, Hangzhou started to roll out the codes and that allowed us to get out of our houses and um, start going around the city being checked. But within a month, guards were getting lazy. Guards were not really checking the code and just sort of waving people by who seemed familiar. And moving on, when you arrive, I went down to Hangzhou about a few weeks ago. When you arrive, you go through, you do a check at the train station to arrive in the city. Once you're in the city, no one seemed to be checking anymore. Shanghai has always been more relaxed and is even more relaxed than that. Other cities, I hear Beijing still has more check, more, more checkpoints, but tendency is towards the decrease. On the other hand, we're seeing um, uh, new applications or new sort of like special population applications coming out. A big one is Hubei, the epicenter province. It's only been a few weeks that people have been allowed to leave, and that's a very health code-based system. Although we've heard of some pretty big bugs there where people get a green code in Hubei, they are advised that they're able to travel, but then they get somewhere else, and the place they're arriving gives them a red code and says, you can't come in here, you've been to, you've been to Hubei, are you crazy? So that sets caused some real trouble for people that are trying to, get, trying to resume their normal lives. The other place we've seen an increase in adoption of uh, checking health codes is at schools. Also, over the last month, students have been resuming, uh, resuming study all over China. And um, to support this, uh, mostly it seems to be Tencent, as we did a story, our amazing uh, Technode intern, Sean E, compiled reports that Tencent has developed a system called a FUSHUEMA, or Return Study Code. And for that, students report their um, self-report uh, travel history and health benefits. They're supposed to report uh, temperature every single day. And uh, they need this code in order to, resume, to, go, back into a, to go back into a school. Uh, we've heard some reports that parents are able to check other students' health data to make sure that their students are safe, but we haven't been able to verify those. Anyway, so that's the checking part of it. The tracking part, the data and, and um, uh, following people, and uh, the data and code generation part of the system looks like it is going to become permanent. It's just not going to go away. We've seen experts discussing in articles online different ways that the code could be used. We've seen experts associated with um, companies that are developing codes like Tencent discussing um, sort of long-term problems of privacy and data management for this system. Also, if you look at the standards, they comment, uh, they comment in the introduction to, these, to the standards for the national code that in addition to public health, the code has applications to uh, individual health care, care for the elderly, and... Um, Handling other mass activities, which is a phrase we don't quite understand the meaning of. <laughs> so it does look like um, now the system's put together, it's probably not coming apart again. And that's not surprising. I mean, we know that the Chinese state doesn't track people nearly as much as it would like to. So I can't see that why they would take apart a system that they've, a system that's, that's adding some more tracking. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think. I mean, we definitely. I definitely want to come back to this. To come back to the issue of uh, tracking and uh, data privacy in general. I mean, it's very concerning to hear that parents might have access to other uh, students' medical information, even if it's only self-reported. But I guess, the, you know, be, be, before we get into that, I mean, I think the, the, bigger, the bigger question really, or the bigger uh, discussion point really is about, you know, the, the actual technology. Because it feels like, you know, some you were just describing how there's been some Pretty, uh, pretty big bugs in in the system. And I was talking to um, to one of our reporters uh, based in Beijing the other day, uh, Wei Sheng. He is from Hubei. Uh, his family is from Hubei. And over the uh, the May first holiday, he decided to uh, to go to Qingdao and getting a getting a train ticket from uh, Qingdao from uh, Beijing to Qingdao was easy peasy. You know, uh, no problems whatsoever. However. 
after he got to Qingdao and he wanted to go back to Beijing, all the ticketing platforms would not, online ticketing platforms uh, would not let him purchase a ticket because his, all of his ID information is associated with Hubei. He was even able to, uh, to call, you know, somewhat like the, um, the, the railway hotline as well as some of the other, some of the, the hotlines for the apps. And they, they all said, you know, just go to the, go to the, the, the ticket desk at the train station to buy your ticket. So he does that. And they say, no, 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 sorry. Um, you know, because your Shenfen Zheng says that you're from Hubei, you can't actually, you can't actually buy a ticket and, and until you submit an application online. And, and basically the online application was the, was the big problem. And so there was pretty much nothing he could do. And so his only recourse was to go to the quote unquote relevant authorities and report this. And so, you know, using like a day, a day and a half, he was finally actually able to get authorization to uh, buy a train ticket from Qingdao back to Beijing. Now, you have to remember that this is all in the context of, um, you know, Beijing being like the most cautious city in the entire country because it's, it is it is the capital. And uh, the uh, the Chinese government uh, has made it very, very clear that, that, that Beijing needs to be uh, protected at all costs. But the thing is, according to any data that would be available about him, he, uh, whether it's from, you know, telecommunications companies and kind of tracking his SIM card, whether it's, you know, a national database with travel history and things like that. All of these records would show that he has not been to Hubei, that he's never been, he's never, he has not been to Hubei since probably, you know, January, before, before, I mean, even before January, before all of this was going on. And so in Beijing, he's gone through all the quarantine measures, he's gone through all the precautions and all that stuff. But because his Shenfen Zheng is still says that he's from Hubei, he still has has these issues. So and that's all to say that there's obviously some really big holes in in the way the system works. And then, you know, I think an, another kind of uh, another point that I want to make is that, you know, this still is still actually very low tech. And so even though, you know, even though the the data being collected, how it's collected, what data is actually being used it's relatively opaque you know the way like in in practice you know you still have to you know fill out a form for wherever you go you have to fill out a form you know your name your uh, id number your passport number you have to self report your your temperature you know your your address and all these things and so it's kind of typical typical china in a certain sense where you know like the government and you know these tech companies they have this huge vision about you know this kind of technology driven way to prevent prevent and, and control an epidemic but really what it comes down to is that there's still these huge problems in terms of implementation and in part because of those problems in part because you know people just don't know how to use the technology necessarily Everything is still very, very low tech. Yeah, well, I think I mean, I, I've heard Wei's story as well, and that's a great illustration of why these systems are concerning. That the systems are much bigger than health code, and uh, as you say, they're low tech and they're set up. They're not set up to in ways that necessarily are meant to serve the individuals who are being raided. They're set up in order to accomplish these big goals, like uh, being like uh, keeping uh, keeping risk the risk in Beijing to zero and. As an individual, you get swept mixed up in these systems, and it can be uh, can be pretty harrowing. Yeah, then you know, as as a foreigner, as a foreigner, at least you know, I kind of have to pray that it actually works the way it's supposed to. I've had several occasions where I've uh, done the intake survey, 
I've you know sent them a scan of my of my face. I've sent them a scan of uh, of my passport. Or the the the, the mini app uh, in, in Beijing we call it Jiankang Bao on WeChat. And you know even then there's been times where I've been logged out or like you know I do all that stuff. It's working fine. And then the next day I try to go somewhere and I try to show my health code app uh, show my health code and I've been logged out and it doesn't work. So I think that you know there's still there's st- I mean it's obviously again one of those areas where it's clearly not designed for for non-Chinese or if you if you don't have a a Shenfengzheng, uh you know a Chinese ID code then a ID card and an ID number then things do get a little bit more complicated and a little bit more um a little bit more a little more harrowing if if you don't have everything if you don't have all your ducks in a row and sometimes getting those ducks in a row isn't isn't always that straightforward. Yeah, I mean I think also something to think some context to think about is that. This is all an add-on to a governance system that is based on people not moving around. I think if you're going to go between the same office and the same home every day, you're going to be fine whether the health code works or not, because the system is that the people you work for, the people who, who the committee that uh, sort of the equivalent of the neighborhood watch that administers the place you live, they're responsible for you and they're responsible for their zone. So if you they recognize you as a person who lives there, a person who works there, they're going to let you in and out fine. But when you turn up as a stranger to somewhere, and if you're going to a mall, you're turning up as a stranger, then you're a risk. And then a few months ago, the answer was just, you cannot come in here. I don't know who you are. You're probably dangerous. And health code has allowed, in some of these cases, allowed allowed it allowed people to come and go and go about a more sort of a, a more modern, more modern or more mobile style of life that uh, isn't so reliant on these, uh, these uh, little cells. Is there anything that um, other countries can learn from this, uh, China's approach, you think? You know, I increasingly I don't think so. It was very successful. Um, <laughs> and China deserves credit, for the, deserves credit for that. I mean, after an initial, initial real failure to contain the virus at its point of origin, at the time uh, when, you know, when I was under lockdown, for, under lockdown in Hangzhou, I was pretty scared. But um, I got back out after, I think, less than two weeks or about two weeks and um, you know, I felt that it had been, been a very long time to be stuck stuck in stuck in my house. But um, looking at the rest of the world, where it's going on for two months, you realize that yeah, the extreme way that China really that China completely shut down mobility, completely shut down walking around, going to the street, going to the market, um, really did work and got the virus under control very quickly. I think the health code really played a really a vital role in this. That I don't think you could have reopened nearly as quickly before um, without this without this way of um, of having this code that allows people to allows people to validate this basic stuff about themselves that they haven't traveled recently, that they don't live with someone who has the virus, and that made it possible for China to keep these checkpoints in place while allowing people to go about their lives. Um, but I don't think it's copyable. I just don't think there's I don't think there's any other state in the world that has the capacity to roll out checkpoints and to control where people go every day with the same kind of extraordinarily like fine grained fine grained lock that the People's Republic has. Yeah, and I think that goes, David. That goes back to your point about the the grid system. You know, the grid system has been in place, you know, for centuries, uh, maybe even millennia in in China, and that's a, it's a very um, kind of typical typical Chinese way of of managing managing society, where there's this kind of you know top down, you know, uh, what's a good way to say it? It's like a top down system where 
you know, there's more, there's, as, as you go down, there's grand, more and more granular levels of responsibility and, and oversight and, and supervision. And, and again, a lot of that's based on, on the assumption and, and the, uh, a system that doesn't really allow much, much internal, internal movement. I think also, you know, when we're looking at other countries, it's actually really interesting. So we published a piece a couple of weeks ago by, uh, by Eliza for our uh, members only uh, newsletter. And she was looking at what what Europe is doing, and you know some of the some of the um, things that Europe is trying to learn uh, from China. And what's interesting is that it really seems that what Europe is doing, what Singapore is doing, um, actually there's actually it's much more technology based um, than than what China has done. You know, with contact tracing via via Bluetooth and smartphones. You know, it's just it's, it's there's actually like real technology going on there, at least consumer technology that we can that we can feel and touch. Uh, whereas in China, it really feels very low tech uh, compared to um, compared to all of that. Also, I think a broader point about you know lockdown in China versus the rest of the world. You know, I think that China's as you said, China's really the only country on the one hand that could um, actually execute on that with the grid management system, but then on the other hand, it's probably the only country that could weather that type of that type of lockdown where whereas we're seeing you know very early on very early stages already EU you know Italy other other countries in the EU the, U, the US they're already starting to relax uh, a lot of a lot of the restrictions where it does feel that China was very serious for a lot longer uh, than what we're seeing in in other countries hmm. I'm not sure actually I mean I the 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 the, the most intense lockdown I haven't been to Italy, but it seems as though the greatest intensity that we saw outside of, at least outside of Hubei, where I don't know very much about what happened, but in most of the country, the greatest intensity we saw was probably comparable to Italy, and that that really only lasted for a few weeks here, where in Italy it's lasted lasted something like two months. Um, so I, I think, in fact, the Italians might may deserve more points for patience than than uh, our our co-residents here. But I guess something to think about, and something I've been thinking about a lot, is that. Um, Really, what the system is for is being able to discriminate among people, being able to divide people into pretty broad groups, and to be able to make decisions saying, "Okay, people who have been to this place recently, they can't go out. People who live in the same compound as a case, they can't go out." It's very difficult to divide society up that way, but it's also it falls pretty far short of what we try to do, what, we, what the Europeans try to do, and what we try to do, which is to make decisions about individuals. In normal governance, certainly, we have a strong, a very strong view that uh, it's not okay to make decisions about groups, especially groups of people who come from a certain place. But uh, in these kind of emergencies, in these kind of emergencies, that really worked out. That 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 approach, that very very crude approach to governance, um, really worked out. Really worked out. Really worked out pretty well, at least as a as an emergency measure. One thing we didn't cover was the sort of systems of appeal. If you are given a wrong code. How does that work? So apparently very few. The very, it doesn't, apparently it doesn't really work. Um, well, our reporter Wei Sheng, he has not had code problems, but he has had uh, serious problems um, with getting around. Um, he also, before the Qingdao incident, he um, had trouble. He was, had been scheduled before the uh, virus in the Chinese New Year to move houses. And um, the authorities at the new at the new apartment building didn't want to let him in for the same reason because he was from Hubei in both cases he eventually he had to appeal to the government of Beijing and find somebody who could um, intervene and make th- recognize that he hadn't been to Hubei and intervene to make things right so it was a very difficult and cumbersome process I've also 
I've heard of people going to um, local authorities, what's called the shuchu or the community authorities, something which is a part of the, something which is very, a very local. I think the best comparison I can come up with is a neighborhood watch or a neighborhood committee, and uh, asking for them to help figure out how to get a code changed. But normally, in most of the country, they say that if you get a red or a yellow code, it should automatically change to green. I mean, for, if you get the code, authorities are going to come and check on you, give you tests, and after a few weeks, it should change to green unless or, or you, unless you get diagnosed with a disease. In practice, it seems like that doesn't always that doesn't always happen, and some people have had red codes that just lasted for weeks and weeks until they had to go and beg for beg for help. So, I mean, I guess you know we talked. So we we've kind of talked about this already, but I think maybe perhaps this is a, an interesting way to wrap it up. I mean. You know what is what do you David? What do you think that you know the health code, but also in some of this offline data collection? What do you think that says about data privacy in China? I mean, you know, there's been a lot of public debate. I think outside of China, at least among China watchers uh, or China tech watchers, about the state of data privacy. There's been a little bit of a public debate, but I think that it's mostly been it's actually been quite facile. In China, around data privacy. So, what's your what's your take on data privacy and, and kind of COVID nineteen in China? I mean, I think that uh, I think what we've seen is an approach that we've seen for a long time. That uh, the Chinese government, uh, Beijing, and increasingly does take uh, data privacy ser- seriously after a series of scandals in which there have been data leaks, um, some intentional, some not. But um, when confronted with a problem, the approach is always collect first and ask questions later. Over the course of uh, this epidemic, we've seen very, a very dramatic and sudden shift going from the beginning when data, when, data co- when data collection and monitoring the disease was really entirely done by local authorities using offline paper, WeChat, whatever techniques they could improvise, going into, into health code. And in the early days when, pe- when local authorities were just trying to identify cases, there were quite a few cases where of intentional leaks, where an official, a policeman, would uh, text would text text their family members saying, "Hey, there's a case in the neighborhood. Here's a, like, look at his ID card." And um, of course, people who got their ID cards shared in that way were found it humiliating, frightening. People obviously people being being accused of having a having a strange and uh, terrifying disease is no is no fun for anyone. As we've moved into um, to uh, to more health code and more centralized systems. There's talk about data privacy. The standards certainly consider it, but these systems are put together really quickly. They were put together mostly by private companies, by Alibaba and Tencent, and we don't really know who has the data, where the data is, go- or where the data is going. Ali and Tencent say that they don't have any direct view into the data, but they also say that they develop the algorithms themselves. So I find that hard to believe. Um, in the national standards, we have a little bit more of a uh, of an insight into where the data is going to live. They talk about a national personal health information platform, which is identified as a data controller. And then the code system is supposed to make queries to that platform in order to make individual determinations about people. But um, I don't know, putting this together with the, with the longer term trend towards worries about data, concern about data privacy, I, I think that we can take it seriously that China would like to have data private, that they are working hard to write regulations to create data privacy and to change how the government works. But the but data privacy is constantly running after running after applications and running after after deployment to trying to catch up, which can be a bit putting a bit like to, trying to put toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah, definitely. 
All right. Well, um, David, I think that's about all the time we have. Uh, again, thank you, thank you so much for for taking the time, even though you know I am your boss and uh, you kind of have to. Um, <laughs> but if people want to, um, if people want to find you online, where can they do that? Um, I mean, I'm best found at techno.com. I write occasionally, and uh, you can read my my writing and reporting on health code there. But you should also uh, read um, all of the wonderful reporting that has been done by my colleagues. And what about Twitter? Oh, uh, Twitter, I'm. At Martin Van Buren, I spelled it wrong. I was in college. It's M A R T Y N V A N B U R E N, but I don't. I'm not as engaged as I should be. I think that's I think that's true for for most of us. All right, so we're going to leave it there again. Th- David, thanks thanks so much. John, uh, yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me, and uh, uh, thanks very much for allowing me to come on once, um, screw the pooch, and then destroy the evidence. <laughs>